net zero except for two crucial caveats. He ushered in Trump. 10% of former Obama supporters switched over to Trump. That would have been the election. And number two, David Plouffe, Obama's campaign manager, he said about a month ago, had not Klobuchar and Buttigieg dropped out within 48 hours of South Carolina, Bernie Sanders would have won the primary. Now, Plouffe is a real numbers cruncher, and he knows those numbers. The bottom line is, had it not been for Obama's calls to Buttigieg and Klobuchar, telling them to get out of the race, we would have had, instead of four years of Donald Trump, we would have had four years of President Bernie Sanders. That's a fact. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Artifact number 43. I am joined by Norman Finkelstein. He is the author of works such as The Holocaust Industry, my personal favorite, Beyond Chutzpah, which just dissects uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, specifically through the lens of some of Alan Dershowitz's writing. And most recently, he wrote this book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, and it focuses on uh, less on policy, less uh, perhaps on some of the stuff that Finkelstein is known for, and more on kind of like wider cultural questions, uh, political correctness, wokeness, as it's now known, the Obama presidency, uh, scholars, uh, well, I guess an air quote scholars such as Robin DiAngelo, uh, Todd Nahisi Coates, uh, Ibram X. Kendi, and we're going to be talking about all of this. And in fact, it's going to be such a broad show. I'm probably going to split into two shows. The first show is going to be on Obama's autobiography or memoir, his presidential memoir, uh, A Promised Land. I, I read it over the last couple of weeks. It's over 700 pages, which I think is critical for the discussion, given just kind of how all around empty it is. And the second show is going to be focusing on Ibram Kendi and Robin D'Angelo. So uh, I guess before I say more, let me just hand this over to Norman Finkelstein and just ask you to uh, introduce uh, perhaps the memoir and your overall uh, take on what you read and how you discussed it within your own text. The first thing to be said is I tend to do textual analysis or what sometimes is called, in my case, forensic analysis, which is to say I look at the text and I try to make sense of it. Does the logic hold? Does the argument hold together? What is the evidence to support this or that claim? Now, in the case of the other works you mentioned, that was a fairly straightforward task. In the case of uh, former President Barack Obama, uh, it was a more challenging task for the following reason. I like to work with a written record. There is no real written record with Barack Obama. So let's take his law school stint and his stint as a lawyer. 
remember that Obama was teaching at one of the top law schools in the country, University of Chicago Law School. And he was being uh, groomed for tenure there. But his entire corpus as a legal scholar, as a constitutional scholar, it consisted of one five-page, what's called note, one five-page note in Harvard Law Review when he was the editor. So there wasn't much of a record to parse there. Then you come to his uh, quote-unquote books. You have Dreams of My Father, which is basically allegedly about himself. And you have The Audacity of Hope, which is basically a campaign a pamphlet, an enlarged campaign pamphlet. The main problem with Audacity of Hope, excuse me, the main problem with uh, Tales of Dreams from My Father is, number one, it's hard to know where Obama ends and his editors begin. Because as David Garrow points out, the book was sent to numerous publishing houses for uh, uh, publication. And it was constantly turned down. New editors went to work on it. New editors went to work on it. New editors went to work on it. And it's, as I said, hard to know where he ends and his editors begin. In addition, David Garrow says, it cannot be any question, this is his words, it cannot be any question that dreams from my father, his purportedly autobiographical account, and now I'm quoting David Garrow, who's Obama's definitive biographer, cannot be any question that dreams from my father, and now I'm quoting Garrow, is a work of historical fiction. And he puts a work of historical fiction in italics. It's all made up. I mean, that's the less euphemistic way of putting it. It's a concoction. It has no connection, uh, barely a tenuous one, with reality. And Garrow is at great lengths, goes at great lengths, painstaking lengths, to demonstrate that. So what's the bottom line? We have no record of Obama as a legal scholar, even though he was cultivated for a tenure-track position of U a University of Chicago. We have a no record of him as a scholar in general, having written some substantive piece of scholarship. And we're left with an enlarged campaign pamphlet, The Audacity of Hope, and a work of historical fiction that pawns itself off as autobiographical, or that is touted as autobiographical. And then that then left me with only one thing, 
to judge Obama by the conventional standards we use, uh, namely to look at his memoir. And I devote, I think, I can't remember now, but probably something along 50 pages uh, to analyzing that memoir. And the only thing I could conclude from that memoir is it's outstandingly unmemorable. It's just completely empty. It fluctuates between these uh, saccharine accounts of him, Michelle, and his two daughters, and this obscure policy wonk, uh, these obscure policy wonk passages, which I find it very implausible that he himself wrote. They're highly technical, and they are not accessible to a lay person in the way that, and I juxtapose him with Jimmy Carter and um, Bill Clinton. Uh, Carter and Clinton both had to wrestle with very significant economic issues. And one thing that's very striking when you read their memoirs is they make it remarkably non-technical, accessible to a layperson, accessible to a generalist, uh, because I think they knew what they were talking about. They weren't trying to hide behind policy wonk gobbledygook. Clinton and Carter were both exceptionally intelligent individuals, remarkably so, each in his or her own way. Uh, Clinton, a terrifying, a preternatural uh, grasp of public policy, a voracious reader, and a very broad reader. You can, he's picking up books on everything. Carter, his mastery of detail, preternatural. Carter was an extremely impressive guy. Uh, and it comes through. None of that comes through in Obama's memoir, which is why I say it's a remarkably unmemorable memoir. And uh, I mean, this was exactly my feeling reading it simply because, I mean, first of all, I am a, a pretty slow reader and uh, 700 pages is a lot for me, especially if there's such a slog. Uh, I think the most disappointing thing of all is in the fact that, I mean, just to, you know, I guess do a contrast with Jimmy Carter. Obama at this point is what, right? He has a net worth uh, somewhere in the deck of millions, right? Uh, he could do whatever he wants at this point. He could go out there. And if he has all these strong core beliefs that remember, like during this presidency, a lot of the, the talking points at the time was, well, he really wants to do X, Y, and Z. He really has such substantial beliefs about this and that. And he could theoretically right now go out and share these beliefs, right? He could uh, do what he feels really is really, really right, because no one is going to come after him. No one's going to punish him. As he famously uh, quipped, I think it was to Bain or whoever, uh, I have no more campaigns to run. If that is in fact the case, you should be able to say exactly what you feel. Now, to contrast that with Jimmy Carter, he did a lot uh, of work like related to Israel-Palestine and granted uh, some of his uh, uh, opinions on are a little bit uh, milquetoast, but regardless, 
he he puts his neck on the line, right? He still gets criticized for that for uh, this kind of commentary. And Obama, like after 700 pages, it's just kind of fascinating how if you paid even a little bit of attention to the presidency at the time and you were reading news articles or whatever, just in a very superficial way, you're not going to get any more insight into Obama and the presidency and his policies and anything really. Uh, uh, compared to just like just seeing the presidency unfold before you. Um, and another fascinating thing is it only covers the first two and a half years of his presidency. So we could potentially have another 1,400 pages of this stuff. And based on the first 700, I mean, who would want to read it other than uh, true believers? There's also uh, parts that I find fascinating for different reasons. So for example, uh, you would think that he would have a lot to say about Joe Biden. Joe Biden figures almost in no way in this memoir. And if you were to sort of like read between the lines, both in text, as well as like some of the comments that were coming out be about their relationship uh, over the last few years, it really seems like Joe Biden had to like bear the brunt of you know, of just a lot of like criticism of like, you know, Joe Biden didn't go to the right schools, right? Joe Biden didn't have the right kind of upbringing. Joe Biden, you know, looks and talks a certain way. He's not, you know, polished like Obama. There might have been, you know, uh, just a ton of resentment between the two that don't really kind of look naturally uh, or allowed to play out in, in this book. Now, you mentioned uh, the name, um, what is the, uh, yeah, Garrow. So David Garrow is the biographer. I believe his his book is like over a thousand pages on Obama's presidency. I have not read it, but I did read various digests of it. And uh, you don't really mention too much about the personal side of Obama, but Garrow brings up a bunch of details that I found just kind of shocking uh, partly because, I mean, for instance, there's been this kind of oprification of Michelle Obama, right? She has these books now with these like awful one word titles, such as becoming, and she's presented as like, you know, this like perfect wife, right? They have this like wonderful relationship compared to like something like Trump and Melania. And yet, uh, Garrow brings up details like back when Obama was struggling financially, she would be out there just totally publicly humiliating him right in front of his friends, in front of colleagues before he was rich and famous. And uh, there's also details about how he tried to, let's just say, like blacken himself, right? He was dating an Asian, uh, a, a Asian slash white woman, and he decided, I can't do this if I'm going to be in politics. I need to date a black woman. So can you talk about some of these details that maybe didn't even quite get into your book that you found just kind of like telling in different ways, revealing uh, in, in Garrow's text? Like what what details from that text stand uh, in your mind outside of uh, what you printed in this book? Well, David Garrow's book is, I have to say, a most unusual book. It's uh, two, 1,200 pages. And then there are 300 pages of double column, 300 pages of double column and notes. So <laughs> it's a real historian's tour de force. Now, the thing about David Garrow's memoir, for better and for worse, I would say, is he doesn't believe in, um, he doesn't believe in suppressing any evidence in the service of a thesis. There is no real thesis. And so 
um, he presents, in my day, the way we did research was we had what were called three by five index cards. And we went to the libraries, we got the archival, the archival sources, and then we copied down information on our three by five index cards. Obviously, none of that is done anymore. But the impression one gets from reading Gao's book is that he used every single three by five index card that he had accumulated over some 10 years of research. And so what you have is basically the raw material for making your own judgments. He will give you everything he found, and then you decide where the truth is. In other words, as I said a moment ago, it's not a thesis-driven book. And in fact, the, the um, lack of the thesis is revealed in the title of the book. It was such a understated title, Rising Star. It's a nothing title. I actually corresponded with him. Uh, I laughed about it with him because I said, you couldn't even find a title for your biography because when he wrote, he wrote the standard uh, biography uh, of Martin Luther King and it's called Daring the Cross. And it was a very good title. As he himself says, it was the best title he came up with. But he does these, these 10 years of research on Obama. He couldn't even come up with a title because there's just nothing there. There's no moment, no turning point in his life, nothing. So when you ask me, what did I discover in the book? I would say in Obama's biographer, namely David Garrow, Rising Star. I think the thing I found most telling was that it was perfectly plain by the end of the book that Obama didn't have a political bone in his body. He was a totally unpolitical, maybe you want to say apolitical or unpolitical. He was and remained a totally apolitical creature. He grew up in Hawaii. Uh, you can't say his parents were, first of all, his father was pretty much a no-show. Uh, his father was African and played a very tiny role in Obama's life in terms of physical presence. His mother was a anthropologist of sorts and spent most of her time in Indonesia, and so he barely had any relationship with her either. He was raised by his grandparents. They were from the Midwest, I think Kansas, but I could be wrong on that. My memory tells me Kansas, but my memory isn't perfect. Uh, and they, his mother was a banker, she started out as, a, I think, a secretary, then executive secretary. She seemed to have been very competent at what she did. Wasn't that his grandmother, banker? Grandmother. What did I say, mother? I, I thought you said mother. I don't know, maybe. Uh, his grandmother. I'm saying he was raised by his grandparents, his grandmother and his grandfather. 
on his mother's side. His father was a salesman. They seemed to be the most decent of folks. They loved Barack Obama, or back then he was called Barry. They loved Barry to death, no question about it. They doted on him. They put him in the best private school in Hawaii, Putiyamo, I think it's called. Putiyamo, something like that. I can't remember the pronunciation. It was the elite private school in um, in uh, Hawaii. And he was known for three things at school. He had a triple reputation. Number one, he always had a basketball with an arm's length, so to speak. He had a big smile. And he... Uh, indulged in what's called in Hawaii chum, C-H-O-O-M, which here is called weed. He belonged to a little group called the Chum Boys. And that was his three things. His intellectual attainments, they seem to have approached zero. He had no reputation for any particular smarts. Which he says, by the way, he says so in the memoir. Uh, yes. Well, it's hard, it's hard to hide that fact, I'm afraid. And um, in his memoir, he does make these claims about having sat in his grandfather's car and read the whole breath of world literature, which <laughs> just so ridiculous. He was barely sober. He was high most of the time. But okay, let's leave that aside. His reading of every significant author, well, ensconced in his father's grandfather's jalopy. He then goes to Occidental College, and he's known there as a GQ Marxist. <laughs> I thought it was a great description. Um, and then in his end of his second year, he transfers to Columbia University. It's relatively easy to transfer mid uh once you're in a school, because what happens is like Columbia loses students who drop out and then they want to fill the empty spaces. So they drop dramatically lower the standards to take transfers. Once as he's Columbia, he claims he was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Nobody had any recollection of that. Uh, Garrow interviewed everybody to be interviewed. Nobody had any recollection of him. What was his academic achievement? Well, here's what Garrow discovers. Now remember, this is not so long ago. A lot of the professors are still at Columbia. Not one, let's be clear, not one tenured professor had any recollection of Barack Obama, not one not only in the field where he majored, political science, but outside. No one had any recollection of him. People like Eric Foner were there at Columbia at the time. 
Barbara Fields was there at the time. No recollection whatsoever of Obama. Uh, what were his grades? We don't know because he won't release the transcripts. So the reasonable inference is he didn't release them because they would have not exactly embellished his record as a world historic genius, as it later came to be said at uh, Harvard Law School. So we have a person with no academic record and no involvement in politics, nothing, nothing. And then he becomes, uh, he, he has a, a job for a year doing this very low level, level status, this low level statistician, uh, you know, collecting data, just uh, statistician is incorrect. He collected data, raw data for a little economic newsletter. And then he becomes a community organizer. Well, you know, a lot of rich people, they become, they do something in the gap year in order to embellish an otherwise unremarkable resume in order to get into a good school. That's very common. Agaro says or documents by the end of the first year, Obama has decided community organizing isn't for me, I'm going to law school. And two and a half years later, a little more than two and a half years later, he's off to Harvard Law School. And it's basically at Harvard that the, the Obama myth, the Obama cult is created. Uh, and what seemed to have happened is the thing about Obama his probably his most salient personal characteristic is not that he was black or half black, but that he was half white. And he knew how to press all the buttons to make white people like him. He he knew white people and does know white people, not not past ten. He knows white people like the back of his hand because he was raised by white people. He never really had any African American friends. He had two close Pakistani friends. His uh, personal relationships were all with white women, so he knew white people like the back of his hand. And at Harvard, he discovered you can work out a kind of quid pro quo relationship. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Each decide they can use the other in quite um, in significant ways. Obama, these white liberals like Lawrence Tribe, Martha Minow, um, Oh, I forgot that guy's name. He drove me crazy. Um, the one who's, who uh, used remarks by Obama in his class, Fluke. Uh, Fluke, F-L-U-G. Uh, these were all typical white liberals who praised the high heaven uh, Obama 
And Obama, in turn, uh, he got, they got to show how liberal they were, how woke they were, how hip they were, because Obama cultivated this image of the hip black person with the um, torn leather jacket, the community organizer, the transgressive cigarette hanging from his mouth. It was all theater. He was a, a privileged brat from Hawaii who suddenly became this hip black person, community organizer, torn leather jacket, and they ate it up at Harvard. Every student that was interviewed by Garrow, Garrow interviewed a large number of his co-students in Harvard Law School. He's so cool. He was so cool. He was so hip. He was so cool. That's what they all say. Nobody comments on his intelligence. <laughs> Just that he was cool. So Obama cultivated them because they can get him in high places. And they cultivated him because they got to display how cool and hip they were. It was like in my generation, when you wanted to show you're a white liberal, when you wanted to show how hip and cool you were, you went to jazz clubs. Every hip white person, I love jazz. I love jazz. And Obama became the new touchstone, the new litmus test of white hipness. You love Obama. Um, so it was all, it was an act. It was a performance. There was no substance. There was no politics. You know, when you're serious about politics, take Chuck Schumer, okay? Chuck Schumer is from my neighborhood, the current Senate Majority Leader. So Chuck Schumer decides he's going to go into politics. Now, he's a very smart guy. He was valedictorian in my high school, and he got at that generation. He was probably one of only two or three people in the whole country who got a perfect score on the SAT. It's changed now, and the SAT has been significantly dumbed down. But in my generation, maybe two or three people in the whole country, and Chuck Schumer was one of them. He went to Harvard, and he went to Harvard Law School. He was originally going to be a doctor. He switched. Um, what's my point? I still remember in my mind's eye, believe it or not, I still remember in my mind's eye when Chuck Schumer was campaigning on King's Highway in Brooklyn for congressman. When you're serious about politics, you start at the lowest level and you gradually rise, learning all the ropes, understanding how politics in Washington, a very arcane Byzantine uh, setup, how it works. And then you make the connections, obviously. You join the committees. You make the, you start network, networking. It's a complicated process to become president 
of the United, or in his case, Senate Majority Leader. You take somebody like Clinton. Believe it or not, while Clinton was still in college, he was already on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 1972. You hear me? 1972. Slowly learning the ropes. You take somebody like Cheney and Rumsfeld. Now, you may not have heard of Cheney and Rumsfeld before they were in the Bush administration, but Cheney and Rumsfeld went as far back as the Nixon and Gerald Ford administrations, which is to say 25 years before they get their positions of vice president and secretary of defense, respectively. That's when you're serious about politics. What did Obama do? He was a state senator for seven years. It was a part-time job uh, because you just were in the state senate for like two or three days a week. And then you came back home because it was, it was not serious. It's Illinois state senate, totally corrupt. And then he was a senator for one year before he decided to become president. He had no experience. He had no idea how Washington worked. He didn't form, he didn't do the networking, being on committees, learning how Congress works. Very complicated, very complex process. He just figured all he had to do was surround himself with geniuses, in particular Jewish geniuses, people like Larry Summers uh, and of that ilk. And all he had to do was give speeches. All he had to do was give speeches. That was, uh, that was it. No politics at all. That, that's a lot of surprising uh, overlap with, you know, a figure like Trump, obviously somebody that's also not in politics. And yet, uh, you know, he, he taps into something else. I, I don't want to say entirely, but the idea is I'm going to give speeches, right? I'm going to sort of like bask in what others might or a certain subsection of people might perceive to be my charisma. And I'll just go with that, right? I mean, Obama was able to do uh, something very similar. And, uh, you know, how you started the interview with just discussing this idea that Obama has no actual record that you could point to. And in my notes uh, uh, for this show, when I sent them to you, I said something like, you know, uh, there's a lot of like unfortunate uh, commentary about conspiracy theories among the masses. And the reason why it's unfortunate is there is on the one hand, you know, very obvious, like clear cut conspiracy theories that don't have anything to do with reality, right? The idea that uh, Obama is not actually an American. Obama was not born in America. Um, you know, Joe Biden did not technically win the election based on voter count, right? Those are conspiracy theories. They don't have a basis in any kind of fact. But there is something to say for the idea that here's this figure that seemed to come, you know, essentially out of nowhere. And yet he seemed to also be just perfectly cast for that specific moment, right? The country was ready enough 
to elect a black president or a half black president, however you want to term it, uh, uh, it, it was not a liability. It was obviously a, a plus in many respects. It was a plus, at least in the sense of energizing, you know, whatever his base was. And yet he did seem to come out of nowhere and he was perfectly cast, right? Uh, Trump as a kind of, you know, uh, uh, phantom antithesis, right? He's not really antithesis. There, there is the kind of overlap. Uh, it, it's, it's also kind of similar, right? Uh, isn't it just kind of... Uh, uh, isn't an interesting coincidence that a lifelong corrupt businessman who has not shown any real competence in pretty much anything in life happens to fail all the way up to the highest office, uh, not just in America, but on the planet, right? What America does, what American presidents do has real world consequences all around the world uh, in a very kind of extreme way. So, you know, it, and and that's the thing, like when you, but when you look at the discussion surrounding Obama, it tends to be, you know, either worshipful or that conspiratorial bent, right? He's not American, blah, blah, blah. And what you miss is the fact that there is like structurally something going on, right? It's not as if that he was groomed by some sort of dark, nefarious force on the outside for the presidency. He's somebody that saw what he was able to accomplish. He was like, maybe I could do this. Maybe I could try. And he did it, right? Uh, based really uh, kind of like on nothing. I, I think in your in your book, you mentioned something like, you quote somebody who says his uh, left center politics were hiding in plain sight, right? Because when you when you say he, he pulled off a neat trick, that refers to a, a comment in his memoir where he basically says, uh, by presenting myself essentially as a blank slate, Anybody that had any beliefs whatsoever, whether they were centrists, whether they were really kind of like, like extreme left wingers, whether they were, you know, Green Party activists, uh, the Green Party, right, during 2008 won almost no votes at all, right? Like green voters, that would be people like me. That was the first election that I was able to vote in. Uh, that's when I had my citizenship. Uh, I, I did not really have a desire to vote green simply because I was like, well, Obama seems to, you know, fulfill some of these requirements. And Anything that you would, you know, want Obama to be, he, he was able to be that. And, you know, a, a lot of the conspiracy theory talk just kind of suppresses structurally, structurally, what, what, what in our planet right now, what in America right now, what, uh, what like characteristics in America allow this to transpire? What characteristics allow Trump to transpire, right? Biden to transpire. I remember in 2020, I was arguing uh, uh, on the phone uh, during the, the debates with uh, Biden and Trump uh, with like a hardcore Democrat who was like, you got to vote, you got to vote for Biden, you got to vote Biden. And I was like, forget about what, what you think about these two candidates. Isn't it insane that we have these two people that are going to be 80 years old soon? And are just lifelong, either corrupt businessmen or just like totally incompetent, totally evil. And yet they're saying democratically, these are your two options. Don't you dare think there's anything out there. Structurally, there's something going on that allows an Obama to come to prominence, a Trump, a Biden, right? There's something happening here. Well, the key, the, the key fact about Obama is that he came he emerged after the disastrous Bush presidency. So there was the catastrophe of the Iraq war, and that was doubled by the catastrophe of the 2008 meltdown. And so the country 
was ready, was poised for a radical break with the past. And what could be a more radical break with the past than electing a black man as president? So Obama and his handlers, basically David Axelrod and David Fluff, they turned the election into a morality tale. They stayed away from any issues because there was nothing to distinguish him on any issues from Hillary Clinton. There was nothing. You have, you have to struggle when you read through the literature to find anything that distinguished the two of them. So issues was not going to win for Obama. He had to play the race card. And they turned the election, he and they both, they turned the election into a morality tale. And the morality tale was, there's obviously nothing egregiously wrong with Obama. He's a family man. He has a winning smile. He went to Harvard. There's nothing egregiously wrong with him. Therefore, if you don't vote for him, you must be a racist. That could be the only plausible explanation. And if you let your better angels guide you, you, of course, will vote for him. Because he's a nice guy, and the only thing that would deter you was the fact that he's black. That was how the whole election was cast. And therefore, elections are normally referenda on the candidates. This election turned into a referendum on the electorate. It was not whether he was qualified to be president. It was whether you were or weren't a racist. And so, as Obama says in the book, he was the ultimate Rorschach test in his memoir. He was the ultimate Rorschach text test. You saw what you wanted to see in him. I found the funniest remark in everything I read in the subject, the one by David Clough, his campaign manager. Axelrod was his campaign strategist. Clough says, I quoted in a footnote in my book, he says, remarkably, Obama's race played no role whatsoever in the primary. <laughs> it was the only role. There was no platform. There was nothing. He himself says, I was a blank slate. Um, so that's, I think, what accounted for his victory. Not sure if I would call it structural, I would call it um, contingent. Uh, it was because of the Bush presidency. And of course, he had a second good fortune in terms of his quote unquote legacy of being sandwiched between Bush and Trump. So that was another stroke of luck for Mr. Obama. Um, Otherwise, uh, I think 
is no conspiracy to say that, of course, from the day he got started in Chicago, uh, he was surrounded by a lot of very wealthy families like the Pritzker family. They vetted him. They were careful. You're not going to put somebody in power. You're not going to use your money to put somebody in power. Who is going to rock the boat? And he was very reassuring that whatever rhetoric that might occasionally go off key in order to get elected, he was their man. And he proved to be their man for his whole time in office. He was, as Cornell West put it, he was the black mascot of Wall Street. Did, did you have any, like in 2008, uh, did you have any positive feelings about the campaign? Did you think this might be some sort of positive turning point? Were you just totally skeptical from the start? Because I mean, by, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't like to claim prescience. Um, no profit for sure. I make quite a lot of political errors. But I had no expectation whatsoever because I saw who were the people supporting him. Mm -hmm. These were completely establishment figures. And I give them that much credit to people in the establishment. They know how to size somebody up. They do. They're not stupid. They know how to size somebody up. And they were very cautious, confident. And if you had any doubts, all you had to do was look at his cabinet, all of his appointees. They were either holdover, holdovers from the Bush administration, like Robert Gates, who was appointed Secretary of Defense, or holdovers from the um, uh, Clinton administration. It's a very funny thing. I never watched this ghastly program called Pod Bless America. Uh, with the, Pod Save America, I think. Pod Save America. Yeah. Whatever. And um, there's this character named Jean Favreau, or as he was known in the, uh, the Obama years, Favs, F-A-V-S, the heartthrob. And once he was having a debate with somebody, I can't remember who it was, from the Clinton camp. I watched it once. It was like a, I don't know how I lit on it, but I ended up watching it. And he says, well, you have to remember, we had Iraq on our side because Obama didn't support the war in Iraq when the vote came, whereas Hillary did. And there are many things to say about that why Obama didn't vote for the war in Iraq. But I won't go through the details now. What struck me about that comment was, Favreau made it out to be, this is the fundamental difference between them. That's why Obama was Obama and Hillary lost uh, the, the, prim the, uh, the primary. And I thought to myself, yeah, the difference was so fundamental that when he got elected, who did he appoint Secretary of State? <laughs> Hillary Clinton. The difference couldn't have been that fundamental. 
if he chose her to be his chief foreign diplomat. Um, so if you had any doubts, and I really did, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I just knew the type. I lived in Chicago uh, at the time, and people would wear these from the Gold Coast. That's the richest area of Chicago. It's like our Upper East Side. And all of these people wearing these buttons, I'm voting for Obama or I love Obama, you know, I the heart Obama. I'm thinking to myself, all right, more fake white liberals. And that was his constituency. So I had no illusions. I, I have very few illusions about people in politics, maybe because I've been disappointed so many times. Uh, I had some false hopes about Bernie Sanders, I'll acknowledge. Um, but in general, I have, I entertain very few, I harbor very few illusions. And uh, Obama didn't, didn't surprise me. I know the type. I've met a lot of the Obama type in my day. So, uh, and that's why I refuse to play along. You know, people, I mean, there are a number of prominent historians who read that chapter in my book on Obama and were not happy with what I had to say. Did they have any like substantive critiques that made you? you know, change anything uh, or like what exactly were the critiques? Was it just like reflexive, emotional kind of response or or what? I said, I don't think he's very smart. You know, so that becomes racist. Wasn't he the editor of Harvard Law Review? You know, blah, 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 blah. And I look at the record. I see no sign of an intelligence there. Um... So that didn't go over. And then people thought I was too harsh on his terms of office. Actually, I, very, I have very little to say about policy because there's already a voluminous literature on the subject. I had nothing of any interest to add to it. I was more interested in Obama, the cultural phenomenon. And I mean, sp speaking of that, uh, there's a quote in your book that um, uh, I, in my notes, I, I expressed why I disagree with it. But basically, on page 266, uh, you have this idea that the reason why Obama was sort of proffered by the white liberal establishment uh, was that there's some, more, some sort of like racist feeling about uh, if we get like a truly uh, wonderfully smart black man, right, we're going to feel inferior. So we're going to put this guy as a, as a kind of um, stand-in. The liberal racist parked on Martha's Vineyard reflexively set the bar so low for black people that Obama could wow them just by correctly ordering subject and predicate and tossing in an adjective or adverb. Make no mistake about it. The woke brigade preferred that Obama be mediocre so as to validate their primordial prejudice that even the best among them can barely tread water. Were his truly a refulgent cast of mind, they'd be gasping for air. Just to give you an example. Now, Cornel West, whatever you think about his politics, whatever you think about his candidacy, he's an extremely smart guy. He attended Harvard during, its, during the heyday of its philosophy department. 
when Quine was teaching there, when Rawls was teaching there, um, when, uh, oh, what's his name? The, the guy who wrote Anarchy and Utopia. Oh, uh, Nozick? Yeah, Nozick was there. He attended Harvard. He didn't choose an easy major. He majored in philosophy. He graduated in three years. That's no small achievement. And then he went to the top graduate school in philosophy in the country at the time, at Princeton. Uh, and when you hear him speak, his range is very impressive. And, um, you know, we have an expression in English, a person's range being a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, Cornell is not an inch deep. And the very few topics that he speaks on that I know he knows the details. He does know the details. His range is spectacular, and he knows the details. I mean, sometimes I'm just blown away. And those white white liberals, they did not like Cornell. No, they did not. The other day, you might know, uh, Obama, uh, Cornell wrote something. Uh, pretty tough on Ukraine. And Keith Overman is his name, the fellow from. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know what he wrote? I was very, it was very revealing to me. You know, you may laugh, but I don't laugh. He wrote in a tweet, I don't even know what tweets are. I'm very far behind, but that's what's cool. They're called X's now. Oh, they're called, are they? <laughs> Well, Musk rebranded Twitter to something called X, but I don't know if it's actually going to happen. It sounds okay. kind of stupid. Um, he wrote, this is what Keith, who's a paradigmatic liberal, you know, an MSNBC type liberal. He wrote, quote, fuck off. I was, that was really insightful to me. Revealing to me, not insightful, revealing to me. Say what you want about Cornell West. He doesn't have a bad word to say about anybody. He can go on with Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, which is the past few weeks. Um, what's his name? Oh. Anderson Cooper. Oh, my brother, we had so many wonderful times together. Oh, my sister, I still remember that wonderful time. He's just a very gregarious, nice guy. Now, I'll admit, I'm not. <laughs> and I'm not particularly generous in my praise, which Cornell always is, Dr. West always is. And uh, Cornell West is the top African-American intellectual in the country. He's... Had he been more serious in his intellectual endeavors, it's a choice he made in life. He certainly would have, could have, could have. I won't say would have, but certainly it was he could have ranked right up there with uh, Dr. Du Bois. And it was striking to me the vulgarity of this woke liberal, Keith Olbermann, so woke, you know, the type that's so woke they put you to sleep. And he says, fuck off to Cornell West. That's the visceral hatred 
for somebody who's not only your equal, but guess what? You're better. You're better. They can't deal with that. Cornell is smarter than them. You know? I, I, I don't really share uh, your view of Cornell West um, for different, I mean, like, uh, first of all, uh, the idea that uh, he's the top uh, African-American intellectual in America. Uh, I mean, just, just by your own definition, he, he has to have written things for that to be the case, right? You can't just be an intellectual because you go on talk shows or that you have uh, uh, correct opinions or this and that. Uh, I I'm, I recently, in the last couple of weeks, uh, reread Race Matters. I first read it when I was a teenager. And I remember at the time, it was around the same period that I read you know, authors like George Jackson, a lot of Black Panther art writing, uh, uh, Du Bois. And I remember coming upon Colonel West because he was also you know, being bandied at the time as, as the top intellectual. And I couldn't remember anything about the book two weeks after I finished it. And I reread in the last couple of weeks. And it, it's it's not, you know, it's not good writing. I will say that he's probably gotten worse as a writer over time because he's much more kind of he's much more performative these days. When you look at the 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 first preface versus the the you know 2001 preface versus the 2017 introduction that he wrote uh some of that is getting worse but i think to be the top intellectual he would have had to have some sort of output and i i think i, I do find it kind of suspicious that all these people like tucker carlson or ingram why are they bringing him on specifically is it simply because no. like he, he's willing to go on or is it simply because like does he not push back enough i mean i don't really watch his appearances on these shows but but what, what why him why do they care so much to bring no, him on they're very well i i don't want to evade any questions that you raise because that's cowardly and i don't want to be cowardly i said i was very careful with what I said, I said he probably could have been another Du Bois. He had the training. He worked hard. His range is dazzling, in my opinion. I've listened to a lot of him. And the depth, it's not just range, it's also the depth, is very impressive. However, I said he made his choice, and his choice was not to be a conventional, rigorous, exacting scholar. That was a choice that he made with his life. Now, I still believe, uh, I'm pretty conventional about these sorts of things. He has a very impressive academic pedigree, and from everything I can discern, there's a real intelligence there. Did he do what a conventional scholar would have done with that intelligence? No, the answer is no. And he's very honest about that. He said, that's not what I decided to do with my life. So I think both things could be true. He had the potential. He chose a different path uh, in life. Uh, which I, I personally regret, but it's his life, not my life. But that's, we'll leave that aside for the moment. Do you think a Keith Oberman, who you probably know a lot better than me because I don't follow these freaks, 
I just remember, I'm just remember him from like the 2017, you know, Trump resistance stuff. And he was, you know, he was horrible then. I'm sure he's still horrible now. You think he would have wrote fuck you to Barack Obama? Uh, of course not. Of course not. They love Obama because he's so mediocre. And they feel very uncomfortable about Cornell because he can match wits with them. I, I do agree oh. that if, if Cornell West would, I don't know, debate Oberman on Ukraine or uh, Israel-Palestine, uh, he would win that debate. I actually uh, do think he does well in those kinds of uh, formats. Also, I mean, even in Race Matters, just you know, to put that into perspective, it, it was a book uh, from 1993, and I was pretty surprised to read all his commentary there uh, i mean it wasn't extensive but he does talk about palestine he specifically mentions instead of israel he uses the word palestine um and these are things that especially back then when you know apac was uh, at the peak of its powers um he could have gone into serious trouble i don't even think he was was he a tenured professor uh, back then? Uh, he might not have been. So the fact is, like he really, like he has taken positions throughout his life that um, are not positions that Obama would have ever taken. And I mean, I have plenty of misgivings about Cornel West, uh, uh, among other things too. But as it stands, like if he does run in the Green Party in 2024, I'm almost certain to vote for him uh, over the alternatives. Um, partly because I mean, I think he could rally. Uh, a significant enough percentage of uh, the Democratic vote where, you know, maybe Democrats will have to do something with the Green Party platform, or it's just going to be yet yet another crack in the Democratic Party system, right? I, long term, I just want to see the dissolution of, of, of uh, all of that before us. So, um, you know, from, from that kind of practical standpoint, I would, but at the same time, if you were to ask me, do I think that Cornel West has exactly the kind of judgment that i would want from somebody as president you know maybe not but then again jill stein is also somebody who's just judgment i don't trust but i did vote for her howie hawkins is somebody whose judgment that i don't really trust but i did vote for him in 2020 so i have to apply a similar standard uh across the board in that regard yeah i i know what as i said one can have an opinion about cornell's politics or his candidacy I don't think uh, his current presidential run, I don't think one can seriously dispute his intelligence. And as I said, it's been very striking to me, the kind of vulgarity that's being dished out at him. Now, if you said those things to me, I'd say, okay, fuck you. Mm -hmm. That's not Cornell. Cornell is not the kind of guy who goes for the jugular. Uh, and there was such vitriol and anger. Fuck, fuck off as if, who do you think you are? You're talking about Ukraine. Now mm -hmm. you're a little bit too uppity. This is for white liberals. This is our bailiwick, you know? So, yeah. Um, well, let's not get too off the track because uh, this is about uh, Obama. Um, and this is about Obama, and that's very much to the point of Obama. Obama was totally non-threatening. They knew he would play ball. They knew he had no political bone in his body. They knew that he would have to defer to them 
to make sense of policy proposals because he had no independent judgment of his own. You know, you no, it's true. Nobody has certainly nobody has complete mastery of all the uh, areas, domains where a president has to make a decision. Of course, you delegate power. Of course, you rely on authority. But what's most striking when it comes to previous presidents or vice presidents, because Bush obviously didn't know what he was doing, but Cheney did. Cheney most certainly did, as did Rumsfeld. They had a very clear agenda. And same thing with Clinton and Carter. They came in with very clear agendas. Carter knew what he wanted to do domestically. It was very reactionary. Actually, it was Carter, not Clinton, who began the whole shift of the Democratic Party to the right on domestic uh, uh, economic matters. Uh, Carter uh, comes in, top of his agenda is Israel-Palestine. Have to solve that issue because it's undermining US interests around the world. Uh, that's a Palestine, excuse me, Israel-Egypt. It wasn't Palestine, Israel-Egypt. He had a very clear agenda. Carter, excuse me, Clinton, there was the crime bill, there was the quote-unquote welfare reform bill. He had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do domestically. They had experience. They loved politics. They had, I wouldn't call it an, a vision, no. They didn't have a vision. They had a distinct political agenda. They knew what they wanted to get done. Obama had no agenda. He had the Obamacare, the, um, <laughs> what's the technical name for it? Affordable, Just, affordable, affordable uh, care act, yeah. He had, but that's not because he had any commitment to it. He knew that every president had to have one signature piece of legislation that they would be identified with. And he randomly chose the health care as his signature piece of legislation. And so nowadays, he was in office for eight years. And if you say, what did he accomplish? 11 out of every 10 people, 11 out of every 10 people will say, what about Obamacare? What about, because that's the only thing he did. That's the only thing anyone remembers. It wasn't because of a political agenda, as if he gave a darn about people on or off medical coverage. He knew that he needed that signature piece of legislation. The one thing Obama cared about, which was actually not a bad thing, by the way, the one thing Obama cared about when he was in office was his legacy how he would be perceived. Will he be seen as a Lincoln? So given that 
being the case, he was ultra cautious. So that's why when it was alleged that Syria had crossed the red line and used uh, chemical weapons or gas, I can't even remember now, it was gas or chemical weapons, I can't remember which now. Um, Obama, even though he had drawn a red line, as he said at the time, a line in the sand on the use of chemical weapons, he did not retaliate in a way as to admire the U.S. in the war, because he was afraid it would blacken his legacy like Iraq did to Bush. So, yes, it's to the better that he was cautious, but no, not because he had any political commitment or conviction, but because he cared about, he's a theater, he's an actor. He cared about his legacy, how he would be remembered. That was his only consideration. If there were any doubt about it, you have to remember the presidents who actually had a political, many political bones in their body, uh, they never stopped being political when their elections were over, when their term of office was over. Clinton had an opinion on everything, and he was looking forward to serving in the White House for a third term under Hillary Clinton. He loved politics. He makes that very clear. He loved the political game. Uh, Carter, as you recall, he ended up as a kind of unofficial global diplomat trying to resolve various political crises as they arose. He then was very much a grassroots election monitor. He was all around the world monitoring elections as they unfolded. And of course, he was involved in a thousand other things, the Habitat for Humanity and so forth. Um, Bush, what did Bush do? Bush got on his motorcycle and he drove into the sunset. That's what and he rode into the sunset. However, the real political figures in the Bush administration, Cheney and Rumsfeld, Cheney, you could not shut up. He could have one, two, three, and four, which he did heart attacks. That did not stop him because his whole body was suffused by politics. He was like my mother. My mother had a terrible cancer, consumed her whole face, lost her vision. Her face was all blood and boils. But I swear to you, the last day of her life, she was saying to me, Tell me what's going on in the news. She had to know. She had, and that was, that's a political person. You have to know. It's in your bones. What did Obama do? Hung out with uh, Beyonce. Has a 60th birthday bash where he invites everybody from Hollywood. Even exes. David Axelrod from the guest list, because he needs, it was a choice between Axelrod, who actually engineered his election, and another Hollywood celebrity. 
he had to have the Hollywood celebrity. That's his character. He collects a lot of money giving vapid speeches, which he probably hasn't doesn't even read until the words show up in his teleprompter. He's totally apolitical, and people hate it when I say that because they love the image, the Lincoln-esque profile. You know, it's all fake, 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 fake. Well, I mean, just like finish up quickly on Obama, uh, another aspect about the memoir that I found uh, fascinating is how uh, he kept shielding Hillary Clinton over and over and over again. And this is a memoir that came out in, in 2020, right? She's not a political force any longer. It doesn't matter. And I guess, you know, we've already kind of uh, essentially answered the question uh, why would Obama do such a thing, despite the fact that he has no actual punishment waiting for him if he throws Hillary under the bus? Um, you know, it, it's the love of celebrity, right? He he calls out, for instance, various pundits in 20, uh, 2007, 2008, uh, kind of hinting at the idea that, hey, you know, what if Obama gets assassinated? But he totally does not mention the fact that Clinton literally made the same exact comments in reference to uh uh, uh, RFK, right? He, she was like, you know, well, we know what happened there, right? So that's why I'm still going to be in the race. But he also just doesn't say anything about her role in Libya. Um, his instinct was, let's not do a Libya intervention. Biden's instinct was, let's not do a Libya intervention. For whatever reason, he deferred to Clinton's judgment. And he takes, he takes, well, it's interesting because he takes the, the the blame for it, but at the same time, can you really call blame? Because it's not as if Democrats or anybody's even talking about the event, right? To the extent that Libya ever gets mentioned, it's like some, you know, Benghazi stuff or like other nonsense, right? They're not talking about the actual issue. It was just two lines in the book. Yeah. In 700 right. pages. It was two sentences, Libya. He looks after Clinton because... The same reason that the Clintons went to Trump's wedding. That's elites. You know, there's the politics, which is sort of like the artifice. And then there's, we're all in the same club. We all go to Martha's Vineyard. We go to each other's weddings. We all hang out together. And then there is the politics, the, the theater, the, the shadow boxing. Uh, so at the bottom, he wants to believe, and in some, to some extent, he wants to believe he's part of that elite club, the, Henry, uh, the uh, Gates, the Bezos, the Martha's Vineyard. It's no accident that Obama chose his houses. What's one house is next door to Jeff Bezos in Washington. And the other house, he has three homes, but the second home is in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, and same thing with Valerie Jarrett, his uh, protector uh, in her memoir, Jared was in the, uh, she's ostensibly black, though she's whiter than my shirt I'm wearing right now. Um, 
she in her memoir, she says at least six times how much she just loves the vacation at Martha's Vineyard. They all want to be part of that club, that very exclusive club. And uh, Obama recognizes Hillary's in that club, Bill's in that club. So you don't alienate them. You don't make that mistake. Trump is Trump was in that club. That's why they all showed up for his wedding. Uh, but uh, for various reasons, uh, he has now he has been excluded, and his lawyer, uh, Alan Dershowitz, have been excluded from that club. Exactly why it's an interesting political sociological question. Uh, basically because Trump has made a reputation of being, I mean, it's completely, it's bizarrely ironic as being a non-insider, <laughs> of being an outsider. And that's why he gets all of his support. Because for the insiders, everybody in Trump's camp fits into the basket of the deplorables, the people who are um, outside the bounds of respectability. And consequently, Trump, in order to play on that, of being an uh, outsider, had to join the basket of deplorables even though he's obviously not. Uh, it's not a new Trump. Look, I remember the Trump who, in New York, when there was the Central Park Jogger case, I don't know if you know much about that, mm -hmm. the African-Americans who were accused of uh, beating and raping in a jogger who was from an Upper East Side investment house, and they were accused of what was cool. The term the media coined was wilding, W-I-L-D-I-N. Oh, I, I know that phrase from high school. You wilding. We we right. dropped the D in New York City. Right. So um, why do I bring it up? Because when that incident happened, Donald Trump took out full-page ads, full-page, in the four major New York newspapers, the Times, the Post, the Daily News, and I think the Telegram, if my memory is right. Uh, he took out full page ads in which he said, I reserve the, oh, he called for the death penalty of these animals. Okay. And even at that time, it was a quite outrageous thing to do. That didn't deter people like, the Clintons from attending his wedding. And that was, you know, yeah, but Trump is one of us. One of us. Yeah, I I remember um like when the whole like Stormy Daniels thing came out uh in 2017, 2018. One of the things that annoyed me the most about it was well, first of all, if you ask like a random person off the street, 
uh, they might have this kind of uh, um, misapprehension that she was accusing him of raping her or it was some kind of sexual assault. But in her own phrasing, she was like, oh, yeah, this was like, two, what was it, like 2006? And uh, we met up in this golf tournament and he started flirting with me. And I kind of thought like, okay, I'm kind of interested. This seems kind of hot. And we went to his hotel room and we had consensual sex. And the fact that she became this kind of like, you know, celebrity figure after the fact, and it's like, think about it. You found this guy hot. Like you knew that he was a total, not only just like, just physically, just at, like, if you saw photos of him during that tournament, he just looks absolutely atrocious. Um, but beyond just the physical repugnance uh, just uh, of him, you thought with his like lifelong, like, you know, with the Central Park Five and everything else and all the discrimination suits, everything, and always settling out of court, out of court, out of court, because he's always losing, because he's always guilty of what he's accused of. You thought he was hot and you had sex with him based on this fact, because you want to get something out of him. And now you're supposed to be some sort of uh, Me Too hero. It's just stupid, right? But it's true. Like everybody's just in this. You know, it's a celebrity, uh, a treadmill, right? And, and that kind of answers essentially that that uh, question that I have about Obama. You know, why don't you actually say something worthwhile now when you don't have a gag in you? And the answer is, well, he does have a gag. It's not a political gag, but the gag is the one of celebrity, right? That's the gag. Well, the gag is twofold. He wants to believe, and to a, a large extent, he is at this point. He's part of, he's an insider. So you don't. Um, bite the hand that feeds you. And secondly, because he has no strong beliefs on the subject. He, he has no strong convictions about anything at all. And that was the funniest thing, and I guess we'll end it at that, Garrow's tome on Obama. And the very last page, you wade through this mammoth home. I'll just hold it sideways. The very last page, and he writes in that last page, uh, while Obama, the, the, Obama's self-creation had produced an ironclad will. However, the vessel was hollow at its core. I have to tell you, it was the most extraordinary statement I had ever read in a book of this size. Usually they say of biographers that in order to successfully write a biography, you have to at some level love the character. There has to be some feeling for the character. And here, Garrow spent 10 years researching the book. And he not only doesn't love the character, he doesn't even hate the character. He doesn't loathe the character. You know, I've read many biographies of Hitler, and it's very hard for the biographer to both write the biography and hate the person. It seems to just doesn't work from a literary point of view. But this was something even more astonishing. He spent 10 years on every possible detail of Obama's life, 
however tangential, however far removed. And what does he conclude? The vessel was hollow at its core. There was nothing there. I called it my book, quoting that statement. I said, it's the Guinness Book of World Records for wild goose chases. He spent 10 years tracking down every possible lead on Obama, only to discover there's nothing there. And so I would just caveat what you have to say, and I have to say, yes, part of it is just we're all part of the same inner core, inner circle. We're part of the elite. So we can't air dirty laundry in public. We don't bite the hand that feeds us. Whatever cliche you want to use. But I think there's an even more overarching fact. He just doesn't care. Do you hear George Bush expatiating on domestic or foreign policy anymore? No, he just paints portraits. That's it, has no interest. Ronald Reagan, when office was over, I remember Chomsky's, uh, Professor Chomsky's comment about him. He said, quote, they set Reagan out to pasture. He just- I mean, he couldn't, he couldn't say anything. Didn't he really have like late dementia at that point? Even if he wanted to say something. He was completely lucid. He was just reading from a teleprompter. As Mm. Gorbachev said, never underestimate Reagan's acting ability. He was a very good actor. Gorbachev called him the acting president. Um, But the same thing with Reagan, the same thing with uh, Bush Jr., And the same thing with Obama. They don't have a political bone in their body. The vessel is hollow at its core. There's nothing there. The book is I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It. Uh, I believe, uh, Norman, you said that you did 50 or so pages in Obama. Actually, I think it's closer to about 120. No, Um, the the whole chapter is about 150. I meant on the memoir. I think I wrote it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of other material there. For instance, just in the Obama chapter, there's a, a lot of like side information on some of his uh, people in the close circle, such as Reggie Love. You have it your own dedicated section to, uh, I guess we could also call it the legacy of uh, Samantha Power. Um, and you do that actually throughout the book, right? There's there's not only the specific thing that you tackle, but lots and lots of uh, sideshows to them, and they're they're worth pursuing. They're worth reading. It is a hefty book. I actually, you know, I I've, I've had this book now for a while, but it, it took a while to actually get to doing the show since I want to actually read the book in question, and I want to read uh, the the other books in question right before I have uh, my own opinions on it. So uh, for viewers, we'll after the show is up, we're gonna uh, soon after this. Uh, put up our show on Ibram X. Kendi and Robin D'Angelo. And in the meantime, if uh, you guys are new to the channel, you could check out a video essay that I did on Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. It's called White Guilt, White Fragility on this channel. 
So thank you, Norman, for doing this show. Thank you for the viewers for sticking it out almost two hours here. And we'll see you again soon.